You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there, and welcome back to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Today, Dan and I are talking with Victoria Rodriguez, who is a licensed professional counselor in private practice in Louisiana, who specializes in career counseling and trauma treatment for healthcare professionals. Drawing on her experiences and academic research on home-based therapy, she also helps home health and community mental health professionals navigate in-home services confidently and safely through online workshops. I was thinking about this the other day, and um, I wrote a note to myself to mention this at the top of the episode. What I'm fascinated to talk to you about is because I'm a lawyer, I work with mental health practitioners. So it's interesting to talk to a mental health practitioner who works with mental health practitioners, you know, guiding them on the kind of the mental health space. One of the things that Melissa and I talk about, we've talked about in the past, is that practitioners, you know, have to be very careful to take care of their own mental well-being, to be the best practitioners they can be. And um, and honestly, it's an ethical issue, I think, in some ways, because if you're not in a good space yourself, how can you possibly be helping someone else? And, you know, from my, what I do with my practice, it's really all about helping practitioners. So it's really cool to have someone on who does that, but in a totally different space you know, within the mental health space itself. So welcome and, and, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys both so much for having me. And I'm just really excited to have that conversation about yeah, like you said, taking care of us so that we can continue to take care of others, but also just practicing self-care and getting the counseling that we need just because we're human beings and are deserving of mental wellness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And knowing that one of your areas of specialty is trauma treatment for healthcare professionals and thinking about how that ties into our topic today of safety for mental health practitioners, safety in their private practices, safety when they're doing in-home care or working at a mental health agency. So we are really excited to hear more about that. So if you could a little bit, if you could talk with us a little bit about your journey and kind of what led you to making this an area of focus in your practice. I know, I think I saw a blog recently that you wrote on this topic. So I'm wondering if you can talk with us about how you got here. Yeah. So I think like a lot of graduate students, um, I transitioned right after, well, even before graduation to community mental health, I completed my internships there and then worked at an agency after. And just the, um, the gap that I saw between maybe what I learned in grad school, you know, what your podcast is all about, this gap between what I learned in grad school and what it was actually like doing field work. It is very hard to remember what Roger said about human compassion when there's a toddler crawling up your leg, when there's something burning in the oven or a stranger that's just sitting um, inside the home that nobody has introduced you to. So it's very difficult to both take in that contextual information and still be a good counselor on top of that. Mm -hmm. So I got really interested in kind of what was happening for me internally, but also what was happening for my coworkers. It can be a very isolating job in home health because you're traveling, you know, uh, maybe upwards of an hour in between, you know, clients' homes, Mm -hmm. and you don't really have traditional coworkers in that sense. So just the kind of that loss of community community too. And 
building my skills without that community. And, you know, being in a PhD program allowed me to kind of hyper-focus on the research too, because I was really interested in why this was happening and what I could do um, to kind of close that gap and help me feel more comfortable and help me feel more safe in those environments. Well, I was going to ask if you could say more a little bit about that, your experiences that you were noticing while doing home health care, what you were noticing of your colleagues' experiences, and maybe also what you still see the people that you work with experiencing if they're doing home health care. Yeah, so I like to describe it as kind of an upside down triangle. And what I mean by that is those who typically have the least amount of training. So just like me, your graduate students, your paraprofessionals, your people who do not have doctorates or, you know, are not the most trained are often working in really chaotic environments with clients with, you know, crazy high needs and really systemic needs versus your counselors who are going to have, you know, that higher level of training are typically not doing in-home work or doing community mental health work. Or I always like to say at the very tip top, they're visiting clients in their home and offering concierge services. So I always thought that was funny where it's like the highest of the high paid counselors are seeing clients in their homes, but also the, the lowest and least amount trained are working with these clients in community mental health. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Talking about in-home and talking about doing the work as a practitioner, Tell us a little bit about some of the unsafe practices you saw and how that has informed the recommendations that you offer to other healthcare professionals. Yeah, so I think when I think about unsafe practices, I think you have to think about the context of in-home work where you are literally going into a stranger's home that you you might have never talked to before or have not confirmed that appointment. You Mm -hmm. don't know what safety issues are happening in the home. So I remember going into homes where there would be pieces missing from the roof, from the floor, Um, again, just because of the, the areas that we worked in. There would be pets in the home, and we never learned in grad school kind of how to handle that, how to have that conversation around boundaries. Um, And then just what we were talking about before we started recording, you know, COVID. So there's there's all of these kind of um, biological safety issues that maybe we weren't prepared for long before COVID came. And again, maybe these practices such as... um, An example I can think of is not wearing the proper shoes, which we think of as so simple, but can really, you know, prove to be a safety issue if you're having to make, you know, a quick exit from a home. Another simple thing that I don't see clinicians do is, you know, they'll they'll not confirm with the client beforehand, you know, of, hey, are we still on for this meeting? Do you have any visitors in the home? Are you showing any signs of illness? You know, maybe not doing that screening. And then even the the simplest of things, like not backing in to a driveway versus pulling into a driveway to make sure that, again, if you needed to exit quickly, that you would be able to. And that's not to say every single practitioner doing in-home work is going to experience these safety issues. Uh, But we do know from the research that something between 50 and 84% of counselors doing in-home work will face a safety issue in the home. And it's very difficult to tell these numbers, right? Because what do we count as a safety issue? Is it me being uncomfortable? Is it a client actively threatening my safety? Is it a biological issue in the home? So it's really difficult necessarily to count that number, but we do know upwards of 50% of uh, clinicians will face safety issues in the home. So as a lawyer, I'm always concerned about liability. And the reality is, you know, for practices, if it's more than just one person, um, sending someone in a home, um, if something happens, carries its own degree of risk and liability. Um, And I think one of the kind of known 
things I think is just kind of obvious is especially and I, I don't I don't know how it's going to sound or chauvinistic or not, but a young a female walking into a home in an unknown situation may face a higher degree of risk than you know a six foot two you know guy who's two hundred thirty pounds, right? You know, or you know, or even a five foot eleven guy. And what I mean by that is that it's just by the nature of what we're what we're doing, we're talking about mental health treatment. We are uh, we are already talking about a population where there's a higher percentage risk of, as you said, there being a danger to self or others, the risk of potential sexual violence or assault. Mm -hmm. So the question I have is, what are things that a practitioner who's going into a home should be doing? You know, are there, there should they be have some sort of notification system in the office? Should there be some sort of uh, ability to communicate um, or to advise people where they're going to be at all times, that type of thing. Are there things like that, protocols or procedures that should be followed that can help reduce some of that risk factors? Yeah. So that I, I want to address the first part of that question. Then I want to get back to that safety checklist, right? Of actual <clears throat> steps that your listeners can use to increase safety and decrease liability. So first of all, I do want to point out that um, my identity has a lot to do of how safe I feel in a particular environment. And so, you know, we can use the gender example, but I also use the race example. So mm -hmm. I am in the South. Um, about an hour outside of New Orleans. And that means that some houses that I used to go to um, would have a lot of Confederate flag decor around the area. Uh -huh. sure. And so for me, that's uncomfortable to be in that environment. But for one of my Black colleagues, it can be a safety issue. So it, that's an example where the identity of the council themselves decides whether or not it's going to be a discomfort issue or it's going to be a safety issue. And certainly gender plays into that as well. So I think it's really important for agencies in particular when examining that risk, being open to understanding that the counselor's identity is going to change the risk factor in sending them into certain homes. Mm -hmm. um, as far as your second question, you know, we know from the research specifically in flying airplanes, right? And you're like, well, what does that have to do with it? But when we look at these pilots who are highly, highly trained professionals, they still use checklists. They are still going through the simplest steps in flying a plane to make sure that they are decreasing the highest amount of risk that they may face and that we eliminate as much human error as possible. So that's what really inspired me is kind of looking at that research, even in flying planes and deciding, well, what are the simplest steps that maybe I do, but others don't do? Because it's not standardized practice. Like one agency might have a safety checklist that they use and another agency might not, or it might look completely different. So I wanted to create a safety checklist that looked at kind of all the simple steps we were overlooking. So I break it up into three parts. And again, this is on the Louisiana Counseling Association website, you know, of, of just the safety steps, the safety steps that we use um, in our state that I got to write, which was very exciting. But I break it up into three steps where essentially it's this preparation that you do before you ever even set foot into the home, the preparation that you do, you know, once you're in the home and the assessment as well, and then the safety steps that you take after you leave the home. So it's an entire process where you're kind of constantly prioritizing safety. Because what I always tell students, um, again, especially the young developing clinicians, is that your safety matters in all of this. You are not at your best um, clinical self when you are feeling uncomfortable or when you are feeling um, unsafe. So for example, the, the first thing I might suggest, you know, before even stepping into the home is making that phone contact. 
you know, and it sounds simple, but I do know agencies that have said, well, even if they're not picking up the phone, just, just drive by and see if they're home, you know, without confirming if the address is still valid, you know, without confirming who is in the home. So I always suggest making phone contact first um, and then packing. So making sure that you have a phone charger in your cord, making sure that you have a bag packed with a first aid kit. Again, all of these simple steps that you can take long before you ever set foot into the home. Isn't there also confidentiality um, aspect there, right? Because, you know, if you have a client and you say, okay, well, this is their address. So, you know, I'm going to go without, you know, doing any of those things you just talked about. And I'm going to knock on the door and I'm like, hi, is Joe Smith live here? And they're like, no, that's my neighbor. Well, who are you? (laughs) Right, Right, exactly. Well, and I'm glad that you brought up HIPAA because something that I think a lot of agencies don't even consider, um, you know, especially... I say this modern age, but this has been around for a while, guys, you know, um, sharing your location on your phone. So I'll hear a lot of clinicians say Mm -hmm. um, that are doing in-home work that I share my location with my spouse, my partner, you know, because they're worried about my safety. And, Mm -hmm. you know, while I want to make sure we're prioritizing their safety, we have to understand that, you know, we are sharing confidential, you know, information at that point, yeah. it part, you know, even the client, not even their address, but just the street that they're on is protected by HIPAA. So I think it's really important. And, and that's a systemic issue right within the whole agency. So I suggest any agency where that practice is happening for them instead to have a way to share their location with their supervisor or somebody else where that um, that has been signed off on rather than just somebody outside of the agency. That is a really great point. Even something like location sharing. I have a question about screening. And my question is this, you know, let's say a client goes to the intake, right? And everything gets set up and someone goes out to the house to do the therapy, you know, do the the treatment, provide the services. You know, you may, you mentioned this earlier, you know, suppose it is a house where there's an issue with, you know, the the treating therapist being a woman or being Mm -hmm. a, a person of color or, you know, being Jewish or whatever it is, you know? At that point, there is an, I feel like there's an ethical consideration here because you have a duty not to abandon, you know, for, you know, not abandonment. Um, this person has essentially signed all your paperwork to become a client. At that point is the, what's the best practices here? Is it that you reassign, you know, assign this person to someone who they'd be more comfortable with? Is it that you say, look, this is not conducive to us as a practice writing therapy, but here's a couple of community resources for you. You know, because you're certainly balancing the comfort and interest of the client with the comfort and safety and interest of your therapist. And I think both obviously have merit, but I also, you know, you know I'm going to show my, my, my bias here a little bit. You know, I think that the priority should be for the practitioner, not just because someone happens to be a racist or have an issue with a woman, you know, but I'm curious to hear what you think, what your thoughts on that are. I need more attorney friends because that's my line of thinking exactly because I'll do a little thought exercise with you. Let's say that I get sent out to a client's house and for whatever reason, they are escalating before I even start treatment, before we even have a relationship. There's some type of physical threats going on, um, which has happened to me um, and lots of other home-based providers You know where there are threats made in the home long before I even step in. And I would ask for the well-being of that client is this the best fit for them? 
ethically, am I doing them a service where I'm constantly scared and not even able to focus, you know, on their clinical needs? Mm -hmm. And at that point, do they need a higher level of care if they cannot even see people um, in the home without there being a safety issue? Because a safety issue for me is a safety issue for the client, because if I get hurt, that means they could face repercussions as well. So I'm really doing a disservice to my client um, or to that client. If I tell myself, you know what, and it's happened before to me too, right? Before I had this training, um, before I started diving deep into the research on this of like, I have to prove myself, you know, I can't just be scared. There's going to be instances where I feel uncomfortable, but in those instances where I have pushed past that discomfort or pushed past that safety issue, it, it was a safety issue ultimately for the client, um, because they weren't getting the care that they needed. And I was not doing the best clinical work that I could. Mm-hmm. So like you mentioned, these are topics that are not necessarily covered in grad school, thinking about what do you do when there is an animal and you're doing in-home care or whatever other issues can come up. And so when people go and they start working for in-home health agencies, it kind of falls on those agencies to make sure that they're providing staff with training, that they have certain systems in place, policies, procedures around safety. So if you're thinking about the model program, programs that are doing a stellar job thinking about their staff members' safety, what are some things that they're doing? And maybe what are some messages that they're sending staff? What are some policies and procedures you see in place? So first and foremost, even when we look at the research, we know that supervision is just a huge component of what makes safe practices and what makes unsafe practices. And the problem in a lot of community mental health agencies is it's either they are receiving supervision, you know, every week, or I know some agencies that even do it every day, they'll do like a morning group meeting, you know, Mm -hmm. we'll we'll talk about your plans for the day. Where are you going to be today? What's your plan to handle if this safety issue comes up? And then some agencies, you know, we'll do it once a month. So I know um, in my state, the Louisiana Department of Health is really trying to regulate and provide maybe some standards for the amount of supervision that home-based providers receive, but that is still ongoing and that's not the same case in every state. So I think first and foremost, when I am, you know, providing a training to an agency or consulting to an agency, my first question is, you know, what is your system for supervision? You know, how is supervision being done? How often are they receiving supervision? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I always ask, um, this is the theory nerd coming out in me, but I always ask, well, you know, what is the supervisor's approach? You know, how are they conceptualizing these issues? How are they treating safety and prioritizing safety because I can work with clinicians all day long that come, you know, to my, you know, one day, one hour trainings. But if the supervisors are not modeling those safe practices or are not, you know, encouraging clinicians to follow a safety checklist, then it's really, um, it's really kind of pointless because then we have a lot of conflict, you know, between what an admin is saying and then what's actually happening in the field. Question for you. Because your specialty is trauma, you're, you know, because of your work with advising practitioners on how to go in safely, I would imagine that in the course of working with practitioners, especially those who might go in a house, that there is a degree of trauma or um, anxiety that kind of comes up. In addition to the, some of the safety protocols and things we've talked about, you know, what are some mental health aspect or approaches, I guess, that a practitioner should go through? You know, you talked about before you had your training that you felt like you just needed to toughen up and you needed to go go in there and do this. Well, you know, now I think you're, you know, obviously you're saying in in retrospect now, right, that wasn't the safest choice and there are better ways to handle that. So if I'm a practitioner, I'm going in a house for the first time, I'm going through supervision. 
are there certain mental health things I can do for my own mental health to kind of, you know, help de-escalate, especially if I go, if I'm working with a client who is, you know, has a high level of trauma themselves, which, which could in turn, you know, provide trauma, I guess, on myself trying to treat them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So we might call that secondary trauma and we might mm-hmm. call that vicarious trauma. I yeah. typically don't use even that language in my marketing. Um, you know, I, I kind of accidentally fell into specializing in a very specific niche of helping those healthcare providers who have done home health work just because I'm really familiar with the issues that they face. Mm-hmm. Um, but I typically don't even advertise it like that because they don't even recognize that what they're going through is secondary trauma. Sure. They might say, I can't figure out why my stomach hurts every morning before work. I can't figure out why I have back pain, you know, but I'm, you know, sitting all day or I'm not, you know, you know, doing intense exercises, you know, I, I can't figure out where all of these physical symptoms are coming from. And Mm -hmm. that's where we start exploring, you know, how trauma has really been stored in their body. Even if they have not experienced trauma firsthand, just because typically of the populations that we work with in community mental health, who again, are the highest needs clients with the least amount of resources, you know, it's incredibly stressful um, trying to provide services, taking all of these safety issues into account, not just to mention, you know, taking in the contextual information in the home. Um, it could be a very high stress job um, with very little pay. So I think it's really important to hold space for those providers, you know, to start exploring how maybe trauma is showing up in a way that they don't even recognize yet. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question, yeah. but that's kind of my approach first and foremost in treating trauma and healthcare professionals. And I'm wondering in terms of trauma and home health care, um, since you're working with a variety of providers who are providing in-home care, are you noticing or have you noticed any trends in the types of traumatic events that people are experiencing if there is an event, right? If you're noticing that there mm-hmm. are specific events that um, health, home health care professionals are experiencing, are you noticing any trends there? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think first what's coming to mind is just this um, you know, while a lot of people were transitioning to work from home during COVID, you know, home healthcare professionals were still being asked to go in the home, you know, to provide these very necessary services. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of confusion um, about how these services that were going to be provided. So I think there's still a lot of burnout from that. Most recently, I also think about how specifically now how natural disasters affect mm. in home care. So I'll give the example um, in South Louisiana, we had hurricanes, Laura and Ida kind of back to back in two years. And um, what I saw for myself and my coworkers is agencies, you know, just not having the systems in place to handle, you know, well, what's going to happen if we don't have 911. So in, in my town, we didn't have 911 working, um, you know, for a few weeks after the hurricane, just, you know, there wasn't any infrastructure. So for me, that would pose a safety issue because if I went to a home, I wouldn't have clean water at this point. So that's not livable. I wouldn't have, um, and I wouldn't have access to 911. So I couldn't call 911, even if something, you know, if there were an issue that arose in the home. So I think there was a lot of confusion in the agencies about what was best practices, but also um, what is not even opening the agency to a lot of liability. So I certainly saw that with natural disasters happening down here of maybe a lot of confusion. And, you know, that's what happens when you don't have those safety checklists in place and you maybe have not consulted with an attorney that works specifically um, mm-hmm. with community mental health agencies and can advise the policies around natural disasters. Also, interested in the fact, and this is, I don't, I'm not trying to put you in spot, you may not know the answer to this, but, you know, again, coming from my perspective as an attorney, you know, we might be talked about liability. You know, every practitioner has malpractice, right? Every practitioner must have some sort of liability insurance to cover them and the work they're doing. How, and does that change at all? 
does that type of liability insurance you you need or, or the type of um, coverage that person needs change if you're going into a home or going into these situations you know if you're going into communities where you know there is a already an environmental risk factor let's say um versus just treating someone within the confines of your office yeah so i always say when they ask this consult a lawyer but i will yeah, say yeah. that you can um Absolutely. but i i would suggest that you call your liability insurance yeah. and say hey i'm planning so even if you're in private practice i know lots of people you know you might see um, so again, I specialize in medical trauma. So I do yeah. see a lot of people with chronic illness. And um, one of the options for them is to have not me, but maybe another practitioner that I refer to go see them in their home if they're bed bound mm. um, okay. or disabled or homebound or anything like that. But I always suggest, you know, to call your liability insurance and just ask if you can, you know, add something to your to your policy, you know, that covers you in doing in-home work because or, we yeah. do know or advise you what, what you right, like. right, exactly. Sure. Um, so I would definitely say, yeah, there are policies out there that are made specifically for seeing clients. We call it um, in the research, like just non-clinical settings, right? Whether that's school-based or sure. um, or walk and talk therapy or home-based counseling, just kind of any of that counseling that's not taking place in your office. I would just be sure to ask your carrier specifically about, you know, circumstances where you might see a client um, in a non-clinical setting. Now, if a staff member is working for an agency and they do have safety concerns, you know, there are agencies that are supportive that really send the message, hey, your safety is really important to us. This is our protocol. We want to make sure that you are safe, that you feel comfortable, and that you know that we have your back. And then there are maybe some other agencies um, where, where people might feel unsafe or uncomfortable, and they also don't feel that their agency has their back or that they don't have their support or that their mm -hmm. safety is not their agency's priority. And not just in counseling practices. I mean, there are tons of people who do home health care. And so I'm wondering what recommendations you might have for someone who is providing in-home care, feels unsafe, but also doesn't feel like their practice or the organization they work for is responsive and supportive in that way. Yeah, that's such a great question, Melissa. I want to make sure I'm thinking about that. So I'm giving you the best possible answer. When I think about what's happening in those dynamics, it might appear like um, just a power differential, right? Like, you know, I'm a student, you're a supervisor in an agency, um, and I am asking for accommodations to not put me in a safety issue. So what I have advised um, before and done for myself as well is instead of, you know, pitting myself against a supervisor or myself against the agency, I try to approach it as, hey, I'm trying to protect the agency as well. Because if, mm -hmm. again, if I'm in a safety issue, this home or this client is going to be the safety issue for the next clinician that comes along and the next clinician that you guys think that you guys send over there. So I, I think it really comes down to, you know, you and the agency versus the problem, not you versus the agency. And I'm not saying every agency is going to be open to that, but that's really their loss. You know, if they're not willing to take those safety issues that you have brought to them into consideration, you know, again, that opens them up to, to liability mm -hmm. or just, you know, not, not best practices. So I think we, you know, we always see in the news about the next home health person that, you know, was in a safety risk or, um, or died in practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just, you know, when I, when I'm running an agency, that's not a risk that I'm willing to take on for what, you know, an extra a hundred dollars, you know, per session or, or less than that in Louisiana. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I just, I think you have to really approach your supervisor and say, I'm, you know, I'm concerned for myself, but for also for the agency, you know, if we continue these practices. What's the prevalence 
I'm just curious. This is not a question we wrote down. I'm just just occurred. To yeah, me. yeah. I'll try what's to the, answer. What What's the prevalence of, uh, in your research, has shown in situations where a clinician has had to take further action? You know, in Maryland, for example, you know, if you think that someone's dangerous to or others, a clinician can, you know, emergency petition them essentially to get treatment. Um, to be brought for evaluation, I should say. Um, is there a percentage? Is this a um a particular factor that um, practitioners going to homes and in, in, in such the ones you counsel mm-hmm. deal with? Or is this, you know, something that kind of happens in a, on kind of a once in a um, blue moon basis? You know, I really couldn't tell you that. So I'm going to make that's a fine. note to add that to my dissertation. Yeah. That's a no, it's a good question. <laughs> yeah. And I can also say in Louisiana, we're, you know, we're under Napoleonic law. So it works a little yes. bit different. We have to physically go. Um, and I'll walk you through this, you know, just for people out of the state who want to know how crazy it is, the, like the mm-hmm. steps you have to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have to physically go to the coroner's office, even if I received, you know, a text or a call in the middle of the night, which again, reducing liability, you know, turn off your phone, do not answer texts or calls or anything outside of office hours because you're just opening yourself up to liability, you know, if your agency does not have a um, an after hours emergency phone line. Um, but I would have to go physically to the coroner's office and, um, and PEC them. So essentially, you know, have the police officers go out there, you know, if they were a safety risk to themselves or somebody else. Um, we also know that could be hugely traumatizing to the client. So I always tried to make sure that that was kind of the last, um, that it was a true crisis situation that called for that because there were just so many steps, you know, that we had to go through and again, could end up being traumatizing for the client. So I always tried to ask, you know, what are maybe other resources they need at this point, or, you know, making sure that I do a full safety assessment with them, um, to make sure that in-home counseling is a good fit for them or that they don't need that higher level of care. Interesting. Yeah. I was just tell you just inside that's, I have friends who attend law school in Louisiana and they were like, Napoleonic law is a totally different beast down there. Yeah. It's a little bit of a disaster. So talk, <laughs> that's a great example of, um, of just how unstandardized these practices can be. So I'll, I'll give the example of an in-home clinician. Um, I'm not making a decision based solely on ethics. Um, when I go into these homes, whether or not it's a safety issue, I have to make that decision legally. So I'm looking at HIPAA. I'm looking at Napoleonic yeah. law. I'm looking at, you know, <laughs> what's what's my agency's policies, which might not match my ethics or the law in some mm-hmm. cases, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm looking, you know, some clinicians might look morally to see what to do. So again, this decision-making process can be so exhausting because you're going through so many lenses to come to a single decision about, you know, what best practices would be. So I'm wondering in the event that you got to, I don't know, train organizations in, you know, equipping their staff with policies, procedures, systems that would increase safety. What are some things that you would be encouraging those organizations to do? I know people who work um, in different roles, different professions who are doing in-home care. Um, I know some whose vehicle have been hit on the job. people who have talked about insect infestations while mm-hmm. they're there, dogs, combative behavior, um, all of those things that you mentioned that can come up that you're not expecting. And I'm wondering if you had the opportunity to train those organizations to say, these are some ways that you can help support your staff, make sure they're safe. What are some things that you would be recommending in addition to that supervision and modeling behavior? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I do provide that now, um, trainings to organizations about best practices around safety, around ethics. And again, so the first thing I'm, I'm asking the organization is how much supervision are you having? What is the quality of that supervision? But then I'm also asking about, you know, the current policies that they have in place for a safety checklist. So again, I think it all comes back to that safety checklist and then what specific issues they might have in their region. So again, I might face hurricanes. I don't know in Maryland what you guys are facing. Um, political infestations from DC. I don't know what's coming up there. So in um, in different states, it might be very different um, safety issues concerning, you know, what's happening locally, but also what's happening um, with natural disasters. Um, so for example, you gave the example of insects or pets. So I'm going to ask the agency, you know, what policies do you guys have around pets or insects? Mm-hmm. You know, do you have Um, Do you have a policy for a person to leave if there are insects? How does the reporting take place? So if I do notice a safety issue in the home, what happens after that? Is the client then cycled through to another clinician? Is a supervisor then going out there? So I've seen some agencies do it like that, um, which is really incredible practice, where if there's a safety issue reported, they're not sending another clinician out there alone. You know, they are going with that clinician. I'll also add that for training. So when onboarding new clinicians, you know, making sure that they have somebody who's more experienced um, going with them into these homes, having a supervisor out there with them, you know, for every single home visit um, for a certain amount of time that the agency deems appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, I think having somebody in there, I think also having regular trainings around ethics. So, you know, um, not just having them watch videos, sign off on, you know, the, the legal paperwork needed, but also having regular trainings that your staff is encouraged and supported to attend, not just, you know, on their own time, on their own dime, um, you know, that the, the agency really promotes this um, prioritization of safety, you know, through trainings and through company culture. I'm not sure if that answers your question. I know that's a big one, right? Of like, what, what can you do to kind of address every single one of these individual problems that can come up? And I'm sure there are even more that we haven't even spoken of yet. Yeah, well, I was going to say one point, as, as that certainly makes sense, you know, to one point particularly you said about, at least initially, even just sending someone out with, the practitioner initially just to scope out the place and you know when you're first meeting the client because that obviously then enables the agency to make the determination you know is this a safe environment you know is this something where we need have their concerns that we need to be aware of and you're having a more experienced clinician be able to help make that evaluation and it sounds like this is an opportunity really for agencies to be listening to their staff right so that way they're hearing what are the things that their staff members are experiencing in the home because if they don't know that certain situations are coming up they can't necessarily assist but if people know hey we're seeing a lot of issues with dogs or insects or whatever you know then those agencies are able to think about how they might need to come up with a plan or a policy or how to best advise people and going back to Maryland, at least house fires, I believe, are our top disaster in Maryland. I didn't know you know that. Wow. I know. <laughs> Learned something I was, new. I was a Red Cross volunteer for a while. I think they covered it in a training. So house fires are our big issue in Maryland. I mean, but that's a great point. So again, we're talking about like biological factors in the home. And I cannot, um, 
I cannot say the number of homes that I went into where like there were just chemicals open or fire hazards in the home. Like people would, um, and again, so this comes up to a safety issue. Yes, it's a safety issue for me, but if it's a safety issue for me, it's a safety issue for that Mm -hmm. client and might need um, another support or another higher level of care. So I'll give the example of clients smoking in their homes. Mm -hmm. So that was unpleasant for me. That's uncomfortable. I'm not a smoker. I don't want to be around secondhand smoke. Um, but for the client, it was also a safety issue, especially for my older clients who were maybe falling asleep with cigarettes, um, you know, and, and again, that's maybe a pro for me as a home-based provider, you know, I'm just not seeing them over telehealth or they're not just coming to the office. I can say I'm seeing cigarette burns like around your sleeping chair. I'm seeing it in your bed. Like, can we have a conversation around that and around your safety too? Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned earlier inclement weather. It would seem to me then that one of the considerations agencies also need to take into account in, at the moment is when a client, when a pr- practitioner is leaving to go to a, 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 a practice or a house, I should say, that they're at that time, real time, also make an analysis as to whether it's safe to even get to the client's house. Could you say that that's, that's accurate too, that yeah. there may be times where, you know, you mentioned hurricane, you do live in an area where there's, well, you know, unfortunately you, you have a higher preponderance of, of hurricanes, right? and certainly destructive ones. So it's certainly possible that, you know, you go, it's a rainstorm, there's a storm coming and it gets worse, that there may be a point where you have to say, you know what, I can't send you out to the house tonight because right, there's a chance that, that it may not be able to get back safely. Um, is that something that agencies should be taking into account as well? Yeah, and that's a really good point. Yeah, this is something I, I talk a lot about with agencies too, and not saying necessarily that an agency should or should not have a policy around inclement weather. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so funny to me the amount of agencies that have not even considered that um, right. as an issue. So, again, you know, they will not have a policy in place of, okay, for a cat one, do we still send them out? You know, I would say no, but again, there's no policy. So I, I have, um, I have no idea like, well, how inclement does it have to be? How do we measure how unsafe a storm is, you know, before we send people out. And again, you know, I, I want to, I want to say I'm not completely like anti-agency, but just, you know, they need to consider this stuff when, you know, when writing their policies. Um, and it's a very difficult decision to make, right? It's very difficult because we don't have these standards of practice um, and we don't have um, measurements, right? For, for maybe what's, what's best practices as agencies. Right. So it's, you know, oh, it's only 60 mile per hour winds. You're fine. As long as you get the 100 <laughs> It puts out the house fires. Right. It's fine. That's why it's right. last. Yeah. Right. Now, one of the things that I know you do is also help people in private practice think about safety. So someone who's in private practice, they may not have an agency that they can turn to or a supervisor to say, what exactly am I supposed to be doing? What do you want me to do? What does the agency want me to be doing? There's not necessarily... Uh, someone that you can consult with on what you should be doing around safety. So what are some things that you recommend people in private practice do to make sure that they're thinking about safety? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, it's so true. Like I talk about home health being isolating, but man, I'm, I'm all telehealth all, you know, in my own home right now. And I mean, that's isolating, you know, when trying to make these ethical or safety decisions. 
So one thing I would say um, to those moving into private practice is just, you know, get a really good consult group going. You know, if there's not one in your area, set one up. It's great for marketing, but it's also great, you know, to assess, you know, if you're prioritizing safety and what safety issues, you know, other practitioners in your area might face. So again, a lot of that information could be the same, you know, screening, 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 assessing the clients, seeing if they're a good fit for your practice. Um, I also suggest having, you know, an emergency policy that you can use in your private practice, you know, so if you do feel unsafe, is there a panic button under your desk? Do you have cameras outside, but also what's like, you know, HIPAA got to say about that. So I, I think, you know, it's really important again to consult with maybe a safety expert, but also a lawyer and what, what you are allowed to do and maybe the steps that you can take to promote safety in a way that's still promoting your clients, um, HIPAA rights and their privacy. I don't have any further questions. Melissa, do you, do you have anything else? Well, I have my usual last question, yeah. which is if people are wanting to uh, connect yes. with you, they are wanting to learn more about the work that you're doing, maybe the trainings that you're offering, how can they find you and how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I do my trainings um, through mycarismyoffice.com. You can also find me on social media at mycarismyoffice. Um, you can also, if you're a healthcare professional in Louisiana looking for counseling, you can find me at revivepractice.com or at revivepractice on social media. So those are some of the places we can get plugged in. And I'd love to continue conversations um, <laughs> about home health and about in-home healthcare. And also just to clarify, since, you know, you are in counseling, we're, you know, we're thinking about mental health practitioners, um, but those trainings that you're offering, might they also be available for people who are nurses, occupational therapists, or other types of professionals who are in the home or other organizations that are outside of behavioral health? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up so I can start remembering to advertise that. So I do have a training coming up. We don't have it scheduled with the Louisiana um, Rural Mental Health Alliance. So we're going to be doing a training on uh, burnout for mental health care providers doing home health care in our state. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, have a lot of academic work coming up, you know, as I finish my dissertation. So I'll be at a few state conferences and a few national conferences, both for um, community mental health conferences and for nurses as well. So again, they can follow me online and I'll post those updates as they come for maybe specific academic presentations as well. Awesome. Just in case there's anyone like me who knows people who are providing home health care, but are not necessarily within the mental health field. Yeah, we love nurses, physical therapists, OTs, SLPs, you know, any of you that are out there visiting clients home for your work. Um, we'd love to talk to you about safety. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think this is just great. I wish we could have spent more time talking because I can honestly say this is not something we've ever really talked about with other people about the actual practical side of this uh, working as a mental health practitioner in homes and, and the considerations, safety considerations. So this is great. Personally, I hope that everyone listening finds this as useful and informative as I just did. Just as a reminder to everyone listening, we are always looking for people like Victoria to come on to our podcast and talk to us about something that you know about that you think other people would be interested in. So if you're listening and you think that's me, uh, we would love to have you touch base with us. We do have a form. You can go to our website, go to a Facebook page. Um, we just fill it out really quickly, much like Victoria did. Uh, and we will get in touch with you and uh, reach out and maybe we'll have you on. To everyone else, thank you again for listening. We appreciate you and we will see you next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.